Thank you for listening to the Gateway to the Rockies podcast from Visit Aurora from the rafters of the Stanley Marketplace. This is the show dedicated to telling the stories of Aurora, Colorado. Hi there, I'm Dave, Senior Marketing Manager for Visit Aurora. I'm joined today by a true local icon, the highest ranking black female firefighter in the history of Aurora Fire Rescue, Lieutenant Kathleen Hancock. It's an honor to meet you, Kathleen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you. I, I want to learn about what life was like growing up, specifically your father, Eddie Lee Hancock, rest in peace, was a Negro League baseball player. What was his experience like during his playing career? And what did you take away from the stories that he he told to you and your siblings? Well, first off, let me say by, uh, he didn't talk much about it, honestly. Really? I can tell you later in life is where it was more known to me what my father did. And I only knew that through friends of their fathers. Um, speaking of my father and his pitching and his uh, batting and how good he was. But honestly, he didn't really talk much about it. He did talk to my friends about it, but it still didn't didn't tune into me till I'd say late in life when he was signing baseballs. And my brother walked in and was like, what are you signing these baseballs for? And he had a past friend that was uh, keeping in touch with all those that were still alive and taking care of them as well as their uh, deceased uh, that were that would have been passed on. So long story short, basically, my father didn't talk much about it because of probably not only the pain that he experienced back then, with that being so different, the things that he would always teach us that words would get you killed to not let it, you have to let it get it off of your back and continue on. But my father, when he did speak of it, he spoke of the the good things about it. But as far as I remember as a child, he didn't speak very much on it. It wasn't until later on in life that he would talk more about it. But what he did enjoy, he enjoyed watching baseball. He enjoyed, even as he got older, watching softball. But he didn't talk too much about it, I think, because of the pain. There was a point when the Negro Leagues came to Pueblo to do um the museum and my father wanted, was going to go and they were going to interview him and last minute he said no. So not only was I believe humbled about it, but I think there was also some pain about it. Athleticism runs in the family quite literally. You you were a two-time state champion track and field athlete. You're a Hall of Famer at that. Um, who did you draw inspiration from? My sister, definitely. You know, she, she made the path paved it. Um, that again, back in those days, she ran against Flojo yeah, before Flojo was becoming real big, beat Flojo. But my first time competing was with the Colorado Flyers, who she belonged to. It was a big program still here in Denver. That was my first time running. And that's who I idolized. My, what I wanted to do was play basketball. I wanted to actually do both sports in college, but I went the, the track and field route. But looking up to her, seeing how hard she did work, the things that she was able to go overseas and compete against all these other women that were high up before her. But also with that, I would say who's always been who I looked up to was my mother. My mother raising six kids with my father working. Some of the hard times back then, that generation was so different. But I honestly believe that that's who has paid the path in losing her so early at the age of 29 on knowing how to continue forward. Um, but those were the two that I would say I I did look up to. I wouldn't be in sports if I didn't see what my sister was doing. And I wouldn't be where I'm at if it wasn't my mother pushing us to be humble and knowing to continue on. Six kids, were you the, the youngest of the six? I'm the second to the youngest. Okay. Two girls, four boys. Was there a natural competitive streak amongst you and your siblings? Always. That fuel kind of your drive a little bit? Always. Always in the street till the lights went out. Um, 
doing our own races to playing softball, baseball in the street, playing football, being on different teams. But there was always a competitiveness, even with my mom getting in the streets with this. We have a picture of her and my sister in the street, like in their starting block. But it's always been. You don't really have a grasp when you're going through that kind of the foundation of of leadership and understanding group dynamics that 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 you're you're getting a hands-on training that you don't even quite realize at the time, I imagine. No, you don't. You're just playing. You're just being kids, and you're looking up to want to be like the the older ones. And then they didn't. They weren't easy on us. Like they pushed us right in there to get right involved and not to be fearful of no matter how big the person was that you're competing against. You you start your career. You're an athletic trainer. You're a physical therapist. What was the bridge that that brought you to the decision to become a firefighter? That came across at the age of 29 when my mother unexpectedly died and I got that call. And for me, it was a turning point. I enjoyed and I still to this day love helping the younger generation and kids. Athletic training was something I stuck to. And the only reason why it changed is life changed to me then. I started looking at there was more to life. There was something more for me to give and to do. And if it wasn't for those chiefs and officers that I treated during the physical therapy, questioning me and telling me to come out and listen, that was the turning point. One of the, the barriers to becoming a firefighter for many is how grueling the training is, yet you have this athletic background. Take us back to when you first started. Was the training more difficult or easier because you were already an established athlete? And, and what surprised you about the process of starting up? That portion of it definitely was team oriented, but it was a challenge. Not only a challenge in Tucson in the hundred and something heat in your turnouts in midsummer and having to bear that taught me. I knew mentally I had it. I knew physically where I struggled was the doubts if I could continue through. And it was more so test taking. Test taking was always kind of a challenge for me throughout my life. And that was the portion. But what that challenge was for me was I've been through worse when that was the mother, my mother passing away. But I also knew there was an officer we had to go on and it was always a mile run and it was to be build up to six miles. Now, granted, I was a sprinter, not a long distance runner, but I had trained and got ready for this. Nerves kick in. And when you're in nerves, it does do something to you when you're competing. I'll never forget them. It was, it was uh, Chief Lopez and bigger, strong dude looked like a football. And I remember a football player and I remember he caught up to me in the run and he said, uh, hey, Hancock, I heard you were a collegiate athlete, a collegiate runner. I said, yes, sir, I was. As I'm out of breath, wondering right. why am I not doing better? And he said, well, you sure don't look like it. Mm and ran past me. And it was that point on that I was like, watch me. I'm I'm gonna make sure I'm gonna hunt him down. And I did. Now that being said, when we came here into, when I transferred over to Aurora, we have what they do like the 9-11 stair climb. Mm -hmm. And that tested, tested me beyond any measures I probably have had in life of not quitting, like knowing we were running out of air. But it showed me that you as an individual, the only thing in person that can pull something out of you. So I found that gear as being an athlete that I knew I won't quit, but also found the gear that I never knew I had that took me beyond that athlete portion of I can die here. Although this is a training, this is a training that says I can die in here and so can I with my others. I got to get out. There, there seems to be a true camaraderie among first responders, a shared bond. As a black woman, did that feeling of acceptance among your peers come easily or were there doubters and hurdles to over? There have been doubters. Uh, there's doubters when I was as, as an athlete. So for me, 
That's not a surprise, but it also is the boost for me. I'm going to challenge any of those, whether it be me being a female, my color, my sexuality. I challenge those that may have that doubt because I think it's a fear. I don't think it has anything to do with me and those three things. It's a fear inside them that maybe it's going to show their weaknesses. And I think as, as human beings, we all carry that. Some of us hide it better than others. You touched on this uh, just slightly, but what was more rigorous, the the physical demands of becoming a firefighter or the mental and intellectual um, acumen that you also have to possess? What 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 did you find to be more difficult? I think the mental portion, I believe the mental portion, and that was more so of the self-doubting myself. There was times that I self-doubted that I was deserving to be here because I wasn't, I was comparing myself to others when we are all unique in our own way. But I would say the mental portion was the hardest part for me. The only time physical came about is when you're not taking care of yourself, getting yourself the the rest, the calls on those 24 hours not resting. But for me, it was mental. It was always that little voice in my head saying, I couldn't and I wouldn't. And there's there's better people than me. And then it would go back to, they don't know what you've been through. Right. You don't know what they've been there, but you you know damn well you're deserving to be here and you should do be able to do this. Being a firefighter isn't primarily about fighting fires. Literally, sure, it happens, but it's often about being the first on the scene for a medical call or an accident or a life-changing moment for a citizen. How do you manage the emotional impact of that personally? And, and how do you prepare other firefighters to manage the emotional toll of the job. As a human being from the, from the first get-go, it doesn't even have to do about being a firefighter for me. It has to do as a be- human being and what I've gone through. I always tell people, you have jerks you come across, male or female, all nationalities. I always look at that person and wonder what's going on inside them. And that's what I tell people. That person cannot be like this 24-7. They, they have got something inside them that's created them. So I tell them when we go on calls, we should be treating people like our family members. Some family members are jerks. Some friends are jerks. But we are there to help them. We are there to make hopefully a change. And that's an opportunity for you to be able to make a change in somebody's life, no matter what you come across. But stepping on there, you will never go into the same scene twice. There's always going to be something different. And to just prepare yourself for that. And the way I take it away is talking as an officer now, even more so talking to my crews knowing I'm not just their officer, I'm their friend and their family members, and they can get in touch with me afterwards. I try my best to lead by example. Now, I also tell them I'm not perfect, and I expect them to call me out like I'll call them out so we can be better together. But as far as serving the community, that comes natural for me. That's what I was doing is physical therapy and athletic training. That's a natural part, but it's also natural what my family has taught us to be like. Physically, you need rest and recovery after a rigorous workout, but emotionally, mentally, after a difficult call or a diff- difficult stretch, what tools do you do you bring to yourself to reset and ground? And, and what kind of tools do you give to your firefighters to say, here's how you refocus, here's how you don't take the job home with you, or is that impossible? You will at times take it home with you. I don't think it's fair to pawn it off on friends and family yeah. because they don't know exactly what we're going through. And I think that's a stress that we need to leave. So for me, I would give the advice to, I'll always say yoga. That was my surviving in grace when my father died, um, was hot yoga. Not only I sweat it out, but you have to sit still. Sometimes we don't like sitting still in the moment. I like to go for long walks. That was hard for me as an athlete. I'm a go, go, goer. I had to learn as time and life went on to learn to sit still, whether it be walking and be quiet in it. 
and to release it and know that everything that we have done, we've done the best we can. Those are my, my yoga, my hiking. I'm not as strenuous as I am as my lifting anymore. And I love to travel. If, mm. if there was water around me, it is serenity to me. Right. It brings a lot of peace. And I always tell people, try to find something. When you leave work, leave it. Leave it there. We see enough. We do enough. Leave it there. Live your life. Because it's, it's, it'll pass by in a blink of an eye. Take me back to being a rookie in Tucson. Do you remember your very first call? Gosh, I don't, I don't think I can recall my first call. Um, I can tell you my first experience of something that, that, that does stick with you. It's, then that's the knowing my family, my mother passing. I do recall what it felt like to watch the others, to be on this end of it, to be there for them. I can recall that. I can recall some experiences that I don't want to remember. I leave it alone. But that feeling of knowing we're helping someone, for again, that just, I think, has just been my nature. When, when you get called into action, particularly when you're a rookie, what, what are your thoughts and emotions? Are you crazy focused and prepared and you revert to your training? Does the adrenaline take over and you, you have to fight to maintain that focus? Put, put us in the shoes of somebody who's just starting out in their, in their first. First call, brand new, brand new person on the job, deer in the headlights. If they're like, like me, I was, we call them green, that they're green. So I was green, new to the whole thing. And when they see something the first time, it is a pause where you have to guide them. Hey, so-and-so, take the vitals. Hey, so-and-so, you're going to go through this door through here. Open up the hose, put some water on it. It's the those types, the teamwork comes through because it's their first time learning as I did. And you do need some structure and some guidance. We've got all the tools, but it's now, oh goodness, this is this is what I signed up for. This is not training. This is the real deal. So it's that little like push, like a pushing a little kid, keep going forward, keep going. You're there. You're right here. So it's that nerves, but then once once you're in it, it's just done. You're you're able to just keep going. Is that a, a natural thing? Like you get to a certain point where you've done enough calls where you know, to step into a leadership position, you know, you can snap into action mode and not reaction mode. Yeah, that does come on. I, I don't, I, my personal opinion is not everybody are meant to be leaders. Right. There are those that are in the leader position, but there's those that help people become better leaders amongst that whole portion of it. But once you do get that routine, the next part of you, once your routine's going, your next position is to be a part of that team and come in together. You lean back and pull one up with you. And that's the repetitions. But there's times, even as much as we get better at the job, we still fail at some things. And I don't even like to call it failure. We just are not as apt as we should be. And it, it takes a team. That's why it's always two in, two out. You can't do it alone. And if you don't have that kind of mentality, someone can get hurt. I could probably talk to you for hours about this. I'm sure you have stories for days about calls that run the gamut of emotions, but I want to keep it fun and lighthearted. Do, do you have a call that comes to mind that was particularly memorable because it was just ridiculous or humorous in hindsight? Yeah, I enjoy going on calls. Now, we all know City of Aurora, over 100 languages spoken, and we do know the diversity of it all. What I love the most is that portion of the diversity and being able to see cultures, especially young kids, and just make that giggle come. And then I can recall going on calls, especially with my culture, and it just puts me in the mind of growing up when a mom is telling a kid to like mind their cues and, and be be respectful. And to hear just that, that mother say something, boy, I told you to get over here and stop. And, and it just 
brings that funness of that all the things that we see as firefighters, you cannot put into words until you're in it. And I can tell you numerous of calls of getting back in the fire rig and talking to my crew and us just laughing. And then there's times, you know, we get in that they're hard, but we have a lot of moments that we have a lot of laughter and appreciate appreciation of what we help and do with our community. On a similar note, the calls that, that touch your heart, that kind of reaffirm that you're living your life's purpose. Is there a call that really sticks out that you're like, okay, I'm on the right path and I'm making a difference here? I would say I definitely know when you have, when you have people watch us walk off of a rig, especially when you see two women walk off of a rig and you see people look twice. I always get, I always get called sir. It does not offend me, especially in uniform because I'm around a lot of men. But that great feeling that when you see other women acknowledge me and another female partner and say, wow, you guys look strong coming off of that rig. And to know I have other female coworkers that I look up to that are just amazing. And then we have male coworkers that have been so supportive of some of us females. It takes, it takes a crew to do the, to the, to do the job well. Um, there, I, I feel blessed because you have to be a different, unique person to be in this kind of field. You were the first black woman in the Tucson Fire Department. Is that right? I was the second. The second. And she ended up leaving and was starting. She went down like the doctor route. What What was the transition that brought you from Tucson to Aurora? I actually wanted to come back home and be with family. Um, I've always loved traveling. The loss of my mother. I knew my father was getting older and I knew it was time to come home. And to be truthful for to you, the way that life has worked out and the universe has worked out, everything has worked out the way it's supposed to. I wouldn't have been here to see my father take his last breath. I wouldn't have been here when my brother passed away. And I'm very thankful because I wasn't here when my mother passed away. And for me, everything's lined up. Everything's paid off. All those deaths have paid off. And to be an officer and to still make my mother and father proud as well as my brother, that's a great feeling. All the hard work, sweat and tears, and those that have helped me along the way, this has been worth it. And it's been great working in this city. You've touched on this a little bit, you know, the diversity of Aurora. It's Colorado's most diverse city. We have a complicated history. Uh, it's a beautiful place with, with amazing people. I, I take it you, you feel a sense of pride serving this community. I do. Uh, if you, I feel the job did not pick you. You picked the job and you picked the city to work in. We all have our issues in any city you look at, but that one individual can make changes where they are working in their city. And I do the best I can along with my crews. Um, we have these, someone dropped us off and donated these, um, these little uh, stuffed animals, the tiny ones. And we've taken them and given them out just to little kids and just to see that brightness. But it, I come from a small town, Pueblo, Colorado, come into this bigger city and the experience that we see, how can you not, how can you not know that in the 24 hours we can affect somebody's life? We can make a difference in somebody's life. And how can you not, as a human being that you chose to work for the city, not feel something, not be touched by somebody? You prove your mettle through the years. You work up the ranks. At what point did you decide, not only am I a damn good firefighter, but I should be a leader? Was that just natural for you? Did you know? I believe encouraging came from my coach, Coach Larry Pickering, my late coach in high school. Um, I believe he's instilled that. And I just didn't know. It, it's taken me and a coworker and a few family member friends and look at me and say, embrace this. You did this. It's time for you to 
own it that you've you've did this and that's the time that i finally have been quiet after being in different interviews and sitting with myself and and realizing if all that pain and all those losses got me here i did do this and i'm happy i'm so proud and what more do i do i have to do that's all to my god that's above me and i will walk this earth and my biggest thing is i love kids i i love to and instill in kids that they can de- be and do anything they can in the worst the worst situations. And if I can inspire any little child that comes across to me and I can help, that's what I was placed on this earth to do, I believe. When you become a lieutenant, your dynamic changes within the crew. I mean, you're a member of the crew. There's a camaraderie there. Now you're lieutenant. You have a different set of responsibilities. Your relationship with the rest of the crew members change. Is, is that a fair assessment? Did it change it or or not really? It has changed. It's changed where I know they are looking at me for the answers, looking at me to lead. I also am giving them leadership to be able to lead me and correct me. I think that's how that should work. Um, I, I've learned on on sites when something's not going the right direction, that I have to take that step in. And then there's the corrective ac- actions with my own coworkers when I have to step in and be mom or dad. That's the hardest part of the job is correcting mistakes or correcting actions. But also I keep in mind we're human beings. This uniform is just our uniform and we're serving at that time. But we're human beings and we have our own issues inside us. Or are they issues or are they complications that we're dealing with. But that's the part that I find hard is learning to continue to be that leader, friend, family member, but also being the parent that I'd have to step in when it's right and correct things that might not be comfortable for either one of us. Aurora has almost 450 firefighters, not even two dozen are black, only three are women. And that's not just Aurora. Uh, What do you think are the barriers that prevent people of color and specifically women from becoming firefighters. When I was in the recruiting position, both in Tucson as well as here in Aurora, a lot of it is not being informed. A lot of it is getting in the works and the weeds of recruiting and being informed of what this job entails. A lot of people of my nationality do not want to run into burning buildings. That's the first thing that I would think. And I know my culture sometimes think is, why the heck would I want to run into this burning building? When you're trained, and you're paid well, and your benefits. And when you tell someone that, and you tell younger the younger the younger generation that, and explain what we're doing, it it clicks differently. We're we're not giving the information on how to become a farmer, how you could succeed, how to take these tests. And one of those people that have made me successful, and many others throughout the of color of uh, male female to be promoted is uh, Selena Dunham, who owns Classique. And I owe it to her of pushing me and seeing in me and being my parent and and being on hard on me. But we need that information while we're out there recruiting, educating, because a lot of a lot of nationalities do not. They did not want to go into burning buildings. And that's what they think. You, you've touched on this a couple of times. And I, and I found this to be true in anybody who endeavors in a career. But you need a mentor. So whatever you're looking to do, you got to find somebody that's willing to take you under their wings and, and say, hey, not only is this possible, but you can even go beyond what I've achieved. And it seems to me that you've embraced that role of mentorship yourself uh, in your role as lieutenant. Yeah, I have. I Those that have been there for me as a child all the way up to the present in the many different forms, I don't owe that. 
I know I am one to, I love giving back to that. If I leave tomorrow this earth and that I left my name knowing I helped someone to get to where I am, but not to get to where I am, I expect that person to out excel me. That should be the goal as a leader is that person excels you and does better. And that's all I, I want to do. That's, that's more desiring and of accomplishment to know that I've helped someone and they look up to me like I look up to others. That's just a compliment. You don't do it for the accolades, but when, when members of the community, particularly women and particularly women of, of color come up to you and say, hey, you inspire me. What is that like? Well, it happened in King Supers near our station at Station 9, which is Mexico and Buckley. And my crew was like, Hey, eight LT, that elder woman stared at you. And it, it was so touching when she looked at me. She goes, my mother saw you on TV and we just want to tell you. And I understand because that's my parents, right? Things that they didn't see the first of. And she's like, my mother cried when she saw you on TV to know that you were in the first of Aurora uh, being an officer in the first firefighter female. It just touched me inside. And I thought, wow, this elder woman who has been through more than me is looking at me in the things that she probably wished that they could have done then that have paved the ways. So it's in, it's just a, a warm feeling. It's I get shy. And that's when my crew kind of, I think, realizes their, their officer does have that, gets embarrassed and shyness of me. But it's really just the humbleness that my mother and has taught me. You got to stay humble. Uh, AFD hosts a really cool program, uh, Camp Spark. Uh, it's an opportunity for young women ages 12 to 18 to gain confidence, learn leadership, take on physical challenges, and participate in an immersive fire training atmosphere. What led to the creation of the program, and, and how has it been for you to watch these young women? Ex Coming from Tucson, Arizona, there's a camp that started out there that only started about three three young girls and a couple of them were the officer's daughters. And I knew leaving there, that program grew way, just grew real big. Right now it's with police and fire. Coming here, Lieutenant Valerie Solano and I spoke and wanting to start this program, um, our past chief, Fernando Gray, helped start that program and push it. And then coming, our current chief, uh, Chief Otten, Fire Chief Otten came in and even stepped up even more with us with that. That program is not just about learning fire. That program is to teach these young ladies how to handshake, make eye contact, have a voice, shoulders back, and to know that no matter what they're doing in life, that they can fake the nervous ner nervousness, but able to present themselves. It's a program that you take these young ladies they come in so quiet and then walk out with their parents smiling and just glowing to see how much the there's this growth in them. That's 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 lovely. And we already have three young ladies that will be testing for our department. And that if it takes one, I'm we're happy. And there's so many women have volunteered their time on our department in other states have come in and helped out with this. This is it's a great program, and and, and we continue will make it even better than one of us, 40 girls. 40 girls already signed up to hoping that they'll be a part of it next year. That's incredible. So when you retire at 50, 60, 70 years, what do you want your legacy ultimately to be? Oh, I don't know if it's gonna be 60 or 70. <laughs> I'm older than you guys think, but my legacy I would hope to be is I carried myself with respect and I would respect you as long as you respected me back, that I spoke up when needing to be speak up and spoken up into times that are hard. And that last, that I didn't, I didn't hold back my truth. I didn't hold back my mistakes and I didn't make excuses for them. That Kathleen Hancock 
gave every bit that she could and did not allow the trauma in her life fail her. That I overcame it and I'm trying to help others to overcome that as well. Aurora Fire Rescue Lieutenant Kathleen Hancock, thank you for being a leader and an inspiration to all of us. Thank you. Uh, and, and thank you for your service to our city. Uh, you can learn more about our heroes at Aurora Fire Rescue at auroragov.org. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gateway to the Rockies podcast. Visit Aurora is the official destination marketing organization for the city of Aurora, Colorado, and acts as the primary liaison between meeting planners and hotel partners. As Aurora's convention and visitors bureau, Visit Aurora's mission is grounded in showcasing Aurora as a premier destination for meetings, business, and leisure travel. Visit Aurora represents more than 75-plus hotel properties with 13,500-plus guest rooms and more than 1 million square feet of meeting space, including Colorado's largest resort, Gaylord Rockies Resort and Convention Center. As Colorado's third largest city, Aurora is located minutes away from Denver International Airport and showcases mountain views, memorable meeting spaces, and 250-plus international eateries that offer a unique experience for each and every visitor. As the gateway to the Rockies, Visit Aurora's role in the local community goes beyond marketing the city as a destination. The Visit Aurora team is here to assist you with your Colorado visit, from facilitating your meeting, event, or convention, to helping you discover local flavor and attractions. Go beyond the boardroom in Aurora, Colorado. For more, visit us at visitaurora.com.